Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Father Rod Bauer is known for his church billboards, which often convey a political message. But is there more to his push for progressive Christianity? In this session, which was recorded at the 2019 Newcastle Writers' Festival, he speaks to Dan Cox. Did you know Father Rod was born in Newcastle? He wasn't Father Rod back then, then. He was, he was just Rod, <laughs> really. Well, I wasn't even that Rod at that stage. Well, really, we'll get to story, that. Yeah. He's now an Anglican priest, the rector of Gosford, where he has served for 19 years. He's also Archdeacon for Justice Ministries and Chaplaincy in the Diocese of Newcastle. He's an ambassador for the Refugee Council of Australia and serves on the board of Samaritans up until recently because he's decided taking on the Senate is a good idea on May 11, 18 or 25. So... You don't need me to tell you that he is very passionate about social justice and human rights issues. He's married to Kerry, who is equally as passionate and equally an advocate. They have two children and three very precious grandchildren. He's the author of Outspoken. Please give a warm Newcastle Writers' Festival welcome to Father Rod. Thank you. One of the very first pages, Father Rod, the book is dedicated to Kerry. And the author's note at the beginning says it was a collaboration and that it would have lacked integrity as a book if you'd written it on your own. Why was it so important that Kerry was involved in this book? Because she's a better writer than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Where's her Father Rod Bauer and Kerry Bauer? Well, to be honest, we wanted to do that, but the publishers said, oh, no, no, we, that does not, that's not how it works, you see, because you've got the name, so that's going to sell the book, so basically. But it was a collaboration, and Kerry is a, a brilliant researcher. Uh, I'm a big-picture person, and you know, she's the detail person, so I said, like, I think I should say something about that. And she'd run off and, and um, get books and... Uh, do all the research and then we sort of work through it and then I'd sort of formulate it. And, uh, uh, but a lot of, uh, you know, Kerry in some ways, we've been together for 21 years and she's learnt sometimes sh to, uh, to, to write in my voice um, and she's a brilliant speech writer. And when I started doing speeches instead of sermons, they're two very different genres. Sermons are very different genre to an actual speech and when I was asked to sort of make speeches uh, in terms of uh, refugees and climate and um, marriage equality. Uh, the first few I made were, people said, oh, it's a bit sermony. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and Kerry's actually a brilliant speechwriter and she's learned to write in my voice. So some of the speeches I'd given to big crowds in Sydney on big occasions have actually been written by Kerry. While we're talking about her... <laughs> That was for Kerry, by the no, way. I know. Yeah, good. <laughs> Rightly so. You had all but resigned to a life of singledom and celibacy, but then you met Kerry. Tell us about the, that process for you and removing your priest's ring from your left hand and replacing it with the one you have now. We, um, we met at the crematorium. <laughs> across a smoke-filled room. <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, she, was a, she, was, she was a funeral director and um, uh, we, uh, she was working for a, a, a company that I'd known quite well in, in Sydney in the early 90s. Uh, and this was the time when um, the AIDS epidemic had just hit. And there were, weren't many Anglican churches in Sydney at that time that would do AIDS funerals. There were only about three of us. And uh, so I got to know this group of funeral directors who, who did most of the AIDS funerals at that time. 
Uh, and they were almost to a person, they're all women, and almost to a person, they're all lesbians. And so Kerry worked for this company. And I thought, well, she's not bad, but she's obviously gay <laughs> because she worked for this company. And, and, um, obviously. Obviously. And, uh, and one day I was, I was doing this funeral and uh, there are glass doors that are at the back uh, of the chapel and I've done thousands of funerals, thousands and thousands. So I can do it with my eyes shut, I don't need to look at the book. And uh, Kerry walked past the back of the chapel and I lost my place. <laughs> And I thought, that's weird. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, but because I was in my mid-30s and single, she also assumed that I was gay. <laughs> so we were just chatting away with each other in a, you know, in a, in a, in a very plutonic, non-threatening kind of way. And, but there was clearly something happening that neither of us could work out. Uh, and so I, I actually eventually came clean and said, listen, I actually uh, wouldn't mind sort of having dinner and, and sort of developing our relationship a little bit and she thought that's really weird so would I but I thought you were gay and she said nah anyway so that's where it all started mm, some parishioners I was gonna say many but some parishioners have asked you this question and at the time you didn't know how to answer it but uh, you've had some years to think about it now so we want to hear the answer why are you so different to your predecessors that was a a really telling question that was posed to me, and it's, that's really what prompted, in many ways, the book. It's a, it, it is, in fact, an a, in answer to that question. Uh, why are you so different? And I think it's because uh, Dr King, um, whose anniversary was yesterday, actually, um, Dr King uh, talked about people preferring order over justice. Um, and... For most of the life of the church, the church has preferred order over justice. It's always about order. Uh, whenever you see anybody sitting up uh, above, not here of course, but anyone sitting up above anyone else, uh, like in a, in a church where the priest sits up, the cathedral where the bishop, a courthouse where the judge, the parliament where the speaker sits, whenever you see someone in a position above, uh, that's about order. It's always about order. And, uh, and Dr King came to a point where he said, you know, we cannot uh, prefer order over justice. And, uh, and I, I came to that point. And because early in my ecclesiastical career, um, I was one of those people who, who really liked the order. Uh, and especially the, the rank and the privilege that when you, as you sort of start climbing the ecclesiastical ladder, uh, that that can bring. But when I was challenged by people who were, were outside of that order and in fact came to empathise with them because of my own story, um, it was then that I, I found I had to be different. I, I, was, I was used to, on civic occasions, sitting next to the mayor, up on the, up, on the platform, up the top, you know, next to the politicians, you know, part of that order, Anzac Day, saying a, a nice little Church of England prayer to, you know, and that was all about order. Um, and, and yet when you start talking about justice, and you start asking, you know, why those people are marginalised, you start to challenge people's concept of order and they get really upset with that. Let's talk then about your early interactions with religion, but then why you chose the Anglican Church as a vocation. I grew up in, up in Hunter Valley, uh, just 20 miles out of Gresford, if you know, in the, on the Allen River. Um, 
the Garden of Eden, that's where it was. It <laughs> really is just a beautiful part of the country. And uh, there were two, two churches, one school and one tennis court. Now, you always got to have two churches because people just can't get on. And so there was a there was a there was an Anglican. that's like <laughs> it was. I won't tell you that joke. There was an there was an Anglican church and a Congregationalist church, but the Congregationalists couldn't uh, afford a minister. So the the rector of Gresford was also the Congregationalist minister. So one Sunday we'd have a church in the Anglican church, and the other Sunday we'd all go to the Congregationalist church, and this would happen. Backwards and forth. So I grew up in this very ecumenical. Um, but I was, I was attracted to, I guess, the, the liturgy of Anglicanism, the, the idea of um, scripture, reason and tradition. Uh, I think they're the three-legged three stool that uh, hold us together because it's not just the Bible, uh, it's reason. It's, it's how, what our minds bring to that. And, and also the tradition. It's also what the last... 4,000 years of, of uh, Judeo-Christian thought bring to that. And you bring, that's what attracts me to that. Yeah. So why as a job, though, you were a butcher? Can oh. you believe it? <coughs> why as a job? Why a vocation? Why become a minister? For me, to be perfectly honest, it was a search for identity. It's uh, being an adopted person. There's all sorts of identity issues that go along with that. Um, and uh, originally, for me, it, it came with a, 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 a position in society, it came with a uniform, a title, all those identity things that an adopted person really searches for. Um, and that was the initial attraction, to be honest. I mean, that's all long well and truly gone now, but um, it was the initial, that's what got me there to start with. Let's talk about Wayne and your first experience of racism, because... The impression I get from your book is that this is when you realised the world is pretty cruel. Yeah. Um, left school, uh, Dungog High School, um, just a, 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 a few weeks off 16. Started work in a butcher shop in Mayfield. Uh, if you're locals, uh, you know Mayfield. Remember Mr Glass's chemist? Yeah. In, right opposite Mr Glass's there was a butcher shop. And uh, I, uh, I used to, as an apprentice, go out and sweep the path of a morning. And uh, my friend Wayne, who was a Torres Strait Islander, uh, he was also adopted by, he was adopted by the Congregationalist Minister, actually, uh, in Gresford. And, uh, and he left school at the same time as me, got a job at the BHP, like most of the boys did that I was in school with. And uh, he'd catch the bus uh, to work outside the shop. There was a bus stop right outside the shop, and I'd go out and sweep, and I'd say day to Wayne, and then he'd get on the bus and, and we'd go on with our day. And this, that happened um, for the first few weeks. And then a new manager started in the shop and I went out to get it away and swept the footpath, came back in and, uh, and he just looked at me. He really eyeballed me uh, and said, so, you talk to black fellas, do you? And from that day on, I waited till Wayne got on the bus before I went out to sweep. And I've thought back over that and it's still every time when I'm, on the, I'm sitting on the Samaritan's board and every time I drive up the main street of Mayfield, uh, I, I never do that without thinking of that, that moment because for me it was a... It took me years to unpack it and to understand what was going on there in terms of the, the domination system that was so strong 
that racist domination system that was so strong that it caused me to fracture a relationship with a friend uh, as a 15-year-old. Uh, so I understand how those pressures can be on people and I think part of my passion for creating a more just society is addressing some of that domination system stuff that causes us to act in such a way. And we, we've seen exactly the same dynamic with refugees, we've seen exactly the same dynamic over the marriage equality uh, debate. Um, and un until we, um, we can address that kind of dynamic, to form a, a, a more, more just society, then people will continue to be marginalised and ostracised and otherised. And, yeah. You touched on it, but how has being adopted changed and shaped you in that sense of belonging as well, in that social justice sense? Mm. I grew up in uh, a, a little country valley where everyone was related. Um, so there's this high, really intense sense of familial identity. And, you know, while I was always made feel really welcomed and loved in my family, I can't blame my family for this, but there was always that nagging sense that if I bought into that dynamic, there was something that really wasn't true about that. I remember having a, uh, an argument with, another 10-year-old boy and we were having, as these boys do, we were having this pissing competition to see, <laughs> you know, to see who, whose family had been in the valley for the longest. And we reached this stalemate where we traced it back to, you know, the five generations, great-great-great-great-grandfather was the same. Um, but then he said, oh yeah, but that doesn't count because you're adopted. And I was only 10, I think. But I just remember, I can remember that, I remember the feeling, that it, it was like a, this sort of hot flush sort of rushed over me and I thought, yeah, I, I don't belong here. Uh, this, is, isn't, this isn't my tribe. Um, yeah, and, and I started really, I, it had a deep effect on me. As I look back, it really did have a quite a deep effect on me. And as I look back now, um, I can sort of trace that, that looking from the outside in experience from that, from really from that moment. Um, and I've been looking from the outside in, you know, for the last 57 years really. I think that's, yeah. Has being involved in the church and being ordained as a minister changed your sense of belonging? I thought it might. Um, and I, for a while I, I let it, I, I let myself believe that it had. But no, no, I still, I still, I look, I look at the church uh, as an outsider. And, and I behave like an outsider in that sense. And um, even when I'm at a senior staff meeting, I'm an archdeacon, so I, you know, I'm sort of in the middle of the ecclesiastical management structure. Um, you know, even then, I, I, I sit around that table and it's like I'm not quite at the table. I'm sort of just back a little bit. And I'm, I'm observing it as an outsider. Um, and sometimes that can bring some really valuable insights, I'd have to say. Sometimes they're not particularly welcomed, <laughs> but, but it's, yeah, it's a, important. You, once you were ordained, you were climbing the, the church ladder and became an integral part of the church hierarchy. Uh, you mentioned archdeacon earlier, but what happened uh, that meant you were stripped of that role as archdeacon years ago and became a pariah in mm. the diocese? Long time ago now, but at that stage, the business manager, the, the guy who managed the money in the diocese, 
uh, stole about $200,000. And um, I'd known him, he was best man at our wedding, you know, he'd been a friend for a very long time, and I went to him and said, look, uh, this has got to be paid back, you've got to take what's coming to you from the judge, and, and, and we will get through this. Um, I'll walk with you, and, you know, and we'll get around the other side of that, and we'll, your life will you know, get back together again. And the bishop at the time said, um, well, you can't, you can't do that. And I said, well, what do you mean I can't do that? That's my job, if nothing. Put aside the, the fact that this person's my friend. Um, I'm a priest, it's my job to reconcile sinners, basically. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm ordained to do. And uh, he said, well, if you, if you do that, then you can't remain an archdeacon and you sack me as the archdeacon. Um, which was um, devastating, because I was still in that identity stuff. Mm. Being an archdeacon was still really important to my identity. And it sent me into a spiral of depression that lasted a couple of years. It was really a dark and difficult time. Would you change that now? Would you? No. Because, I mean, really, at the end of the day, again, it's... I think if we're really deeply honest, if I'm deeply honest with myself, it wasn't just for him that I did it, it was because I couldn't have lived with myself had I not done it. I, I couldn't, have, couldn't do that. Um, I couldn't have looked in the mirror and you know, as an, you know, remained an archdeacon and, and was sort of on a, quite a trajectory up the ladder at that stage. Um, Is that I, a Wayne moment in some ways? Yes, I, th I think so, yes. And maybe that is... Oh, that's very insightful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe it was... Maybe I just wasn't going to let the Wayne thing happen again. And, um, and, and sadly, that, you know, that, that particular bishop at the time you know, said, you know, we, we have to be absolutely transparent about this. Um, and I don't even need to finish that sentence, do I? Yeah. Yeah. Pariah is an awful word, but uh, your um, oh, naughtiness isn't the right word either, but you, uh, you were outspoken, put it that way, hence the name of the book. So let's talk about social media. Um, you supported that friend during that time, and then you started to use your Facebook page as a way to inform parishioners of not just church events, but then there was that post in 2013. Tell us about the Some People Are Gay post, and then the infamous street sign that came from it. Got a phone call from a woman whose brother was dying of cancer uh, in the final stages and she wanted me to come and give him the last rites and he lived in an apartment up on the hill in Gosford. And uh, she greeted me, took me into the lounge room where there was a hospital bed set up. Uh, he was unconscious. And uh, I started asking a few questions just to get a bit of an idea of his story. And, uh, and asked if he lived alone, and, and um, she kind of looked at the floor and said, oh, no. Um, and I said, well, does he have a partner? And looked at the floor again and said, um, yes, and then sort of glanced a look at a closed door. And I thought, oh, I know what's going on here. And I said, um, well, you better get him out here so we could be part of this. And, um, but I don't blame her for, she, she assumed that I was judgmental and that I was anti-gay and all that kind of stuff and I don't blame her for that because that's the message that she got from the church. And, um, but it deeply affected me and I, I wanted to put
put a message out, even just to my local community, and say, look, you know, you know, if you're gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender or whatever, we don't care. You know, you are welcome here. This is a this is a safe place for every human being, no matter what. And so I, I went back to church. I put up the sign, dear Christian, some people are gay, get over it. <laughs> Love God. Love God. <laughs> and um, and it was um, and that was just like for people who might drive past, you know, I thought that but then I stuck it up on Facebook and we had about hundred and fifty Facebook followers. Uh, most parishes have got 150 Facebook followers. They've got, they got the 100 parishioners and about 50 people who feel sorry for the priest. That's kind of... And um, so I just stuck it up there and um, all of a sudden it just went, life went crazy. You know, within a, in a week there were 3,000 followers on our Facebook page. The media went crazy. I had no idea how to handle that. Um, I just, I, I started to think, you know, for people who have some real disaster happen in their lives and they're dealing with that and all of a sudden they're dealing with all the media ringing them up and wanting to interview them and that kind of stuff. I just don't know how they cope. And, um, and it was a bit like that for me for um, a few weeks and, um, and then it kind of died off, like, you know, tomorrow's fish and chip paper sort of thing. And, and, uh, so then you go again with another so sign. So then, then, I, then I thought, hang about, I've got a bit of a platform here. Mm. <laughs> 3,000 followers. Yeah, I've got 3,000 followers. What else do I want to say? Um, and so we, we sat down uh, and in, the, in the parish and thought, well, what do we want to say? We've got a platform. What do we want to talk about? And why do we want to talk about it? And we can't talk about everything, so let's, let's really think about what we're passionate about. And we, there's a, a, a verse of scripture in the prophet Micah called, to, to, it says, to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly. And so we, we think, okay, the three things. What are the three things that we can do or talk about or advocate for that are in, in accord with, with justice, mercy and humility? And so we chose the um, marriage equality debate um, because uh, it was a justice issue, we felt. And we really did feel that we, we could say something. Tiernan Brady, who's a wonderfully urbane Irishman who ran the um, Irish... Um, marriage equality debate, then came out here to run the Australian one. He, he said, look, normally in Ireland, as in Australia, you know, clergy are slightly below used car salesmen in terms of, <laughs> you know, views of integrity. But they found in Ireland that the priests who spoke out in favour of marriage equality in Ireland were among the, the top of the people of influence. Uh, so he, when Tiernan got here, he headed straight for some of the more influential clergy and tried to get us together to... to so we, we did that. Um, uh, to love mercy was clearly for us the asylum seeker issue at the time because we were just so distressed about how we were being diminished uh, as a nation and, and some of the world's most vulnerable people were being diminished as well. And then uh, humility was really... Um, because the, the Latin word that we get that from means earth, uh, so we thought, well, we really do need to do something about the climate stuff. And so they were the three that we... And so we started getting into all those issues and now we have 60,000 followers on Facebook and 25,000 on Twitter and um, regularly get in media and stuff. And have a clear strategy now? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
What has been the reaction from parishioners from 2013 through? What's been the reaction from conservative Christians? And has your congregation changed? Parishioners have been pretty good. Um, we lost a handful over... When I went in the Mardi Gras the first time, <laughs> that was a bit of a challenge for some, some people. And there was a, an old uh, uh, guy, uh, he was a fireman, he, he was in his sort of late 80s, and when I went in the, the Mardi Gras, he, he came to me and, and he said, look, you know, I just can't do it. I, you know, I just can't come to church if you're going to do that kind of stuff. And, uh, and uh, off he went to another parish, and we used to still see each other in the street or at the pub or something like that, and, and we'd always sit and chat. Anyway, he came back, he, he came to see me um, about 12 months ago and said, would you mind if I came back to Gosford? And I said, well, of course you can come back to Gosford. And then about three months later, he, at the end of church, we have a time for birthday blessings and, you know, whatever, that kind of stuff. And uh, he came up and said, can you, I get a little emotional when I think about it, he said, can you bless, say a blessing for my niece, um, and her, uh, her partner, um, uh, uh, they were a same-sex couple, they were getting married. And he, so he'd come back because of this personal experience he had with his niece. Of course, he loved his... He went to the wedding um, and he asked me to say a blessing for them. And, and this man was 90... By that stage, he was 90. He just had his 90th birthday. You know, and so what a journey he'd been on um, from, from leaving the church because I went in the Mardi Gras uh, to coming back at the age of 90 asking a blessing on his niece who was in a same-sex marriage. And I just think that's... It's a, it really does my heart... warms my heart when I think of that story. Yeah. In 2014, that was your first gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. You were on a float. Mm -hmm. What was the anxiety and the fear that you had about that? Mm. It wasn't from parishioners. No, no, I was on a, was a marriage equality float, there's a huge wedding cake, um, I think the caption was, why, why are they eating our cake? <laughs> and um, I, I was up there with the, with the gorgeous Del, uh, Del's a performer, uh, performs as a, a, a trans, uh, transgender person. Um, and, um, and so the idea was, Del was there ready to get married, I was there as the priest and there was nobody next to Dell, so that was the theme. Um, and um, but we we had had a number of uh, quite credible death threats from conservatives um, the week before. And um, and Kerry and I really we we sat down and we talked about it, and you know, we had the conversation: is this is this really worth it? You know, it's just it's a parade, like you know. And, but in, in the process of the conversation, we, we came to the, I guess, conclusion that people are dying because of their sexuality. Uh, people t young people are taking their own lives because of their experience of otherisation and ostracisation. You know, if, if I can stand up there and on that float in the front of all those people and send that message that, you know, God loves you and we are with you and beside you and, and in many cases we are you, um, then 
that's important. So why is my life worth anything more than theirs? So we decided to, to go through with it. And I still get emotional about it because when I was booked into a hotel and we said goodbye to each other. Because, because we, you thought we, that would be the last we time? Didn't, we didn't know that I'd come back, no. Do you live with that kind of fear regularly or is it only the 2014? Oh, ac occasionally. Yeah, occasionally. Um, we get some credible threats. We had one not so long ago after the, after the um, um, New Zealand thing. Yeah. Um, so we're really security conscious. We're very security conscious on a Sunday. We have, gla we have glass doors and they're locked so that we have people on the door who let, it, people, let, in. let people in. Um, now, it, because we're an inner city church and we have a lot of uh, faces we don't know, um, but it just stops a, a, a whole group of people sort of coming in, which we've had on a number of occasions. So you have had more than one? Because one twice. has been, you've had it twice. Yeah, twice we've been invaded by right-wing extremists. Yeah. Yeah. Is that scary? Oh, yes. Yes. Especially the second one. The, the first one I kind of got, I knew who he was, and I got what they were after. They were all dressed up as Muslims with a loud hailer, uh, with a call to prayer, and they put their prayer mats down in the middle of the church and did this mock prayer. And um, so that was manageable. The second one was on the Saturday night in the chapel, and there's no way out. Uh, and that was by a, a bloke by the name of Neil Erickson, who uh, was the guy who jumped on top of Egg Boy uh, the other day. Um, and the guy who organised the St Kilda rally here a month or so. And he's a, he's a really big guy, a really tall, big guy in a small space with a loud hailer, uh, incredibly intimidating. Uh, and there was a guy there with a sword. I know it turned out it was a fake sword, but, uh, you know, in that shock of that moment, you don't kind of think those things. Um, and so that was pretty... I was pretty traumatised, and the congregation were pretty traumatised by that. You have been told by those sort of people and others to stay out of politics. Why haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't... I mean, the, the gospel is inherently political. It, 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 if you read, seriously, read the gospels, then uh, all he's talking about is, is how we human beings create a more just society. I mean, he called it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, that sort of stuff, but it, it's really about a just society. He, he, he talks about bread. Um, and that's an inherently political thing to starving people. When, when people are starving, you start talking about bread, uh, that's political. Uh, everything's political. He was... He was executed for sedition. Um, you know, not for feeding the poor, but in fact feeding the poor in that society was seditious. So, um, you, you... If what you believe doesn't hit... The rubber doesn't hit the road. If it, if it, if it doesn't transform society, then it's, it's, not, it's not Christianity. I mean, people talk about... Islam being a, uh, a political ideology um, in very negative point. And it is. It is a political ideology. Uh, but no less than Christianity. Christianity is also a political ideology. It is about changing society. 
You say the work you're doing in Gosford is socially engaged Christianity. How's that different? What is it? Well, again, and that comes from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who talks about socially engaged Buddhism. Uh, he uh, saw Buddhism, you know, ha happening in the temples kind of stuff. He said, no, there's got to be more to it than this. We need to get out into the streets and, you know, feed the hungry and, the, and change society. And I think that's, that's the same. And again, it was that transition from being focused on, uh, on order uh, to being focused on, on justice. And so it has to be engaged, has to, rubber has to hit the road. If we're not, if we're not changing the domination system, uh, if we're not changing the way people are marginalised and ostracised, then you know, we're, we're just not doing our job. Uh, Dom Helder Kamara, who was one of my great heroes, a South American bishop, uh, he said, when, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. Uh, when I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. Uh, and I think that's the difference. Yeah, we've got to feed the poor. I mean, that's part of our job. Um, but it's not the end game. The end game is to ask why they are poor, address those issues, so they don't have to be poor anymore, so we don't have to feed them. That's, that's the issue. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, yeah, certainly it is, it is standing b beside marginalised people, the refugee or you know, gay and lesbian people or whatever. But the bigger question is, uh, what, are the, what are the social dynamics that are, that are causing these people to be marginalised, that are causing people to take their own lives? What are the social dynamics that are causing us to lock people up on Manus and Nauru? Um, what, what are those social dynamics about? And they, they have to be addressed uh, as well uh, because we want a society that is just. You and Kerry made a decision to at least one of you witness, whether it be online or face-to-face, -face, the Royal Commission into child sexual abuse hearings mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. Why is that? We both felt that because of my journey in the Diocese of Newcastle for you know, all but two years of my entire life and ordained life, that people who had been part of that long story uh, needed to stand and bear witness to the story, uh, needed to hear, hear the story, see it, feel it, and, and bear witness to it, and, and absorb all those stories. And so we came up here to the courthouse and sat day after day, and when we couldn't be there, one of us would be watching it live streamed. Um, because uh, you know, I, I felt I had to, because I'd been part of that story, um, unwittingly in terms of the sexual abuse, but I'd still been part of that story and I felt I had the responsibility to, to hear it and to feel it uh, and to, to know some of the pain of that. And how did that affect your faith and your vocation? Um, I have a weird kind of faith that doesn't kind of get <laughs> affected by that. <laughs> I don't even know if I can explain what that means. But, uh, but my vocation was another thing, mm. I, I think. There was, a, there was a point where 
we'd certainly, the, the senior clergy had agreed that when we went to the courthouse, we wouldn't wear clerical attire because it could be a trigger uh, for some of the survivors. And so we just you know, always wore suits and ties. But there was a, there was a, a moment when um, I wasn't in the courtroom. I'd actually, I was, uh, I'd just conducted a funeral. I was driving back to the office. I had it on the radio. I was listening to it and um, there was a piece of evidence that I heard that connected one of the priests who had a pseudonym to someone I knew very well. Uh, and that was, yeah, that was a moment when I thought, I can't do this anymore. I just can't. I can't do this job anymore. But I just felt so diminished um, and so infected by this stuff that I just thought, I, I can't. I, 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 I pulled over the side of the road, I rang Kerry, I was crying. I couldn't. Yeah. So it's, um, but I, I managed to try and, you know, find, you know, Bishop Greg Thompson, who's who was the bishop who led us in the most extraordinary way through uh, through that at, at a great personal cost. Um, after the Royal Commission had finished, um, we were somewhere, and he had his open, he had a purple bishop shirt on and a, and a collar in his pocket, and he and um, he. We were off to a meeting or something, and he put his collar in, and he said, "We've got to we've, now. We've got to rehabilitate this." Um, and I think that's kind of what we're trying to do. And he he gave us you know, Joanne McCarthy and I were speaking at something at the university on the kids on Nauru, uh, and it was around the time of the Royal Commission. And um, she spoke first, and I was following her, and she's and she basically said, you know. Had Bishop Greg Thompson not conducted himself in the way he had, then Rod would have no credibility talking about this issue. And she was right. Mm. So, and it was only because of Bishop Greg and his, his sacrificial view and being utterly survivor-focused. You know, you know, he gave us permission. I think, you know, I, I was deeply institutionalised in the church, it, 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 you don't know you are. You, you don't know that that's your terms of reference, and and Bishop Greg gave us the freedom not to be that. Uh, he basically said, "I don't really care what this costs. We're going to do. We're going to pay proper redress, and we're going to be survivor focused, and that's that's it." And he gave us permission to move outside of our institutionalised bubble. You mentioned one priest there, but you realised quickly that there were peers, colleagues, friends, but also mentors that were perpetrators. You were wearing, when you're in Cessnock, the same robes that the region's most prolific pedophile mm -hmm. also wore, and I won't name him. Do you, how do you move on? How do you, how do you trust your colleagues after that, knowing that cover-up that has taken place? You don't, really. Um, you can't, and that's a very sad thing to say, but the, the moment you allow any kind of blind trust is the moment you put children at risk again. Mm. Um, so you, you have to have 
the right checks and balances and professional supervision and you have to keep your eyes and your ears open all the time and we constantly talk to our congregations about this. You know, if you see anything or you hear anything that just makes you a tiny little bit uncomfortable, then you've got to come and tell us uh, because, you know, we're going to have to have to deal with this. And it's... But that's, I think, needs to be true of any... Not any institution, but any community... <laughs> Um, because 80% of child sexual abuse happens in the home by a trusted relative or friend. Um, and so we all have to keep our ears and our eyes open all the time. And it's, it's not about treating everybody with suspicion uh, because that fractures all sorts of relationships, but it is about being awake and alert and conscious. They didn't give you any training on that? None at all. I, I left college... I'd never... I, I was not abused as a child and uh, I left college, I was ordained not knowing that child sexual abuse existed. I didn't know. It never happened to me, I'd never seen it. And it was not? And it was hard. never spoken about and I went through three years of training as a priest without anybody telling me, you need to look out for this and when you see it, this is what you need to do. Didn't have a clue. We haven't even touched on Indigenous issues and really haven't spoken about asylum seeker issues. So I want you to think about your questions. I've only got a couple more before I want to hand it over to you. You write about a conspiracy of compassion in the book. You say systematic and intentional random acts of kindness. Are you describing a utopia or can compassion actually change the world? We have to believe it can. Otherwise, we have no hope. Uh, we, we, have to, we have to believe that we can change the world. Um, we have to believe that we can change uh, an unjust society into a just society. We have to believe that we can turn back climate change. Uh, otherwise, we don't live as people of hope. Um, I, forget who, I forget who it was that uh, said, um, you know, you know, don't don't think that one one person can't change the world. It's the un, it's the only thing that ever has. You know, it is it is the one person and the next person and the next person uh, that changes. You know, the society from the family to the neighbourhood to the community to <coughs> the to the nation. Yeah, we can do this. It, it, we can. We're built to do it. We're we're programmed to do it. It's just the domination system that stops us. Um, that's what we've got to change. You describe the asylum seeker issue as a battle for the soul of our nation and you write that not enough of us care. Mm. What needs to happen from here? We, we always knew that the only way to change the lot of asylum seekers and refugees was to, to change the, the mind of middle Australia. Um, it, it was clearly on both sides of parliament uh, a, a, a wedge issue that they were, they were playing to our, our, our worst angels, not our better angels, uh, that fear was being manipulated by, you know, very skilled people for political purposes. So it, it wasn't an, until... And we saw eventually it really what shifted it was the, the kids off Nauru campaign. Uh, and there was a lot of work when, before that that sort of 
uh, laid the groundwork, but it was the Kids on Nauru campaign that really began to shift public opinion on this. And the, and the government started to sense that and then didn't quite know what to do. Um, you'll remember the, um, the people being afraid in Melbourne restaurants comment. You know, because of the African gangs, <laughs> you know, people. Are, uh, um, that was that was that was when we knew that the refugee issue had lost its currency. The moment that Dutton said, got onto the African gang, try it didn't work. But the moment he said that was the moment we knew that it had lost its political currency because he had to find another scapegoat. Uh, and that didn't quite play out. So you've got you to watch for who's being scapegoated. Uh, listen, to the, listen, you're in an election campaign. Uh, listen for the, who's being scapegoated, who's being otherised. Uh, and, I, and I think that's the... No matter where you sit on the political spectrum, uh, as a human being, when you hear uh, others being scapegoated, that's time to stand up and say no. It'll happen to the... We'll blame the pensioners or we'll blame the people on Newstart or, we'll, you know, we'll blame people with disabilities or, or whatever. I mean, the... I know we've... Uh, uh, the Royal Commission uh, into people with disabilities is a really good thing. Um, there's been all sorts of valid questions, I think, about the terms of reference. Um, but listen under that. Uh, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a political cover at the moment. Uh, listen to some of the rhetoric that's going on under that, uh, about, especially about the NDIS um, and, and why it hasn't been rolled out properly and why it's not... Uh, why, you know, why is there a surplus there on the, ND, the NDIS? Um, it, it's quite simple. Of course, people haven't been able to access the, um, um, the services. Um, and and there's so listen listen for the scapegoating and vote one Rod Bower New South Wales Senate. <laughs> I'm being careful not to say that. <laughs> I'll say it. For Thank you, you, Dan. Don't tell the ABC I said that. <laughs> no, no, no. I want to ask you if you have any questions. Straight up, right here, down the front. Wait for the microphone. As we've mentioned, we are recording this session so those who couldn't make it in get to hear it as well. Please introduce yourself. Hi, my name's Jane Smith. Uh, Rod, after we all do vote for you, how is Rod the politician going to be different to Rod the parish priest? That is a really good question. <laughs> I Honestly, I hope not. And I'm, I'm really trying to work through this in my own head. Uh, I'm trying to... It's such a, a difficult forum, especially in an election campaign, especially in the heat of a, a political interview on you know, uh, television or whatever. It's really difficult to say I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, it's really difficult to say we need to work through that. It's, and, I'm, and there's a lot I don't know. I mean, I, and I, but I don't. I don't. The, the, it's easy to become the skilled political operative. Um, you know, it doesn't it, it's, that's easy in that sense to spin. It's easy to spin stuff. Um, I, 
you know, people say, you know, got to, you've got to leave your religion that, that out, outside this and all that kind of stuff. And, that, and that's, that's a really hard thing to juggle. I mean, I, I even tossed up whether I should wear this today or I should wear an open neck shirt, all of that kind of stuff, you know. Um, I, I hope, and I'm not campaigning here, but I, and I'm careful not to do that, which is probably why I'll never get elected. But <laughs> 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 um, I, I want to take my faith in. But I, 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 and I think the, but the, the issue is with anybody, and nobody sits in that house or, um, apart from their own ideological framework. Everybody has an ideological framework, whether it be faith-based or politically based. Um, but unless you can translate that into universal principles, uh, and that's, what I, that's kind of what I want to do, and I think that's what I've always done as a priest, to be honest. I mean, I think I've tried to translate those things into universal principles that create a just society. And, and that's what I want to do if I do sit in the upper house. I mean, I might be bringing, generally speaking, bringing legislation, I'll be reviewing it. That's how, that's how the system works. Um, but I want to review it through a lens of, of human rights. Uh, I want to view it through a, a lens of, of being climate-informed. Um, and I'm going to make some huge mistakes. Um, yeah. But I, I just hope that there's enough people in Australia, and, there, and there's a lot of candidates who are trying to bring something different. And I, I just hope that... And it, again, it, it, we shouldn't blame our politicians. I mean, it's easy. I mean, I've done it. I've, you know, I'm guilty. I blame politicians for everything. But... Um, now I'm going to become one. I say, don't do that. <laughs> um, but our, they represent us. They really do. Um, they really do represent who we are. And when we look at that in a mirror, sometimes we don't like it. Mm. But they, we've got to be honest and say, well, we, we collectively, we, we put them there. Uh, and they're doing everything they think we want them to do to stay where they are. Um, I just hope there's an, enough people with enough patience to say we need to go on a journey, and it is a journey, and it's not going to happen in three, six or ten years, but we need to begin a journey that, that transforms our political life into something that is more life-enhancing. So. In the blue. Thank you for your tears, which have been a river that is taking you to a conscious, examined life. Thank you for those. This morning, Gillian Triggs talked about how Australia has just exported terrorism. And we have a group of men right now between sort of 19 and 30 that, like you, have sought identity, mm -hmm. but have done that through a white, um, privileged perspective. And I'm worried about this cohort of men that are finding domination as opposed to affiliation. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about what we can do for these lost ones. Or they think they're found, but I'm worried about how they're proceeding. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. I mean, our domination system is white, male, Western, heterosexual, nominally Christian. That's the, that's the domination system. Now, that, that, is, that is evolving and it is changing. And so people who with an, un, uh, an unhealthy attachment to that will actually feel threatened. Um, you know, some, some of these young men are genuinely feeling threatened. Because and they gen those those uh, men who invaded our church 
uh, were, 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 they thought they were defending their domination system. That's, that's what they were doing. They were afraid that, that was, I was you know, saying, we've got to change this. And they say, no, 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 that we benefit from that. Well, in fact, they actually don't benefit from that. They only think they do because they're so far on the edge of it that there's no real benefit for them, only in their social identity. I think one of the, the, the first thing we, we have to do is, is find a way to in, in honestly engage that, that real fear. It's, it's, fear is real even if it's irrational. <laughs> to engage that real fear. And at the moment, all we've got is people manipulating it. Um, you know, there are politicians out there and there'll be hundreds of them out there during... Um, Fraser Anning's just put up a new party, uh, One Nation. Uh, these people are all skillfully manipulating that fear. And we've got to call that out. We've got to say, hang about, uh, I hear your fear, I understand it, but I'm not going to collude with it or manipulate it. Um, I'm happy to, to, to walk with you uh, and to find an, a, a better way of being in this space, but I won't collude with your fear or manipulate it. Down here. Merrin, down this way, please. Oh, you've got a Mac. Uh, uh, Brad Webb, Father Rod. Hey, um, Brad. The, I'm always curious that questions around social justice and human rights tend to get thrown into the left bucket, yes. that they're left issues. And you talked about um, the, cent the centre and the mass of uh, the community that we need to influence here. H how do we do that? How do we take social justice and human rights out of the left bucket and put it in the centre and make it part and parcel mm. of who we are? Yeah. The um, religious conservatives and progressive secularists have one thing in common, uh, and they they both they both want to paint um, religion as right wing. It, it serves both their purposes to do that, um, and I I don't I don't think it is to be honest. I think the the bulk of people of, of faith um, tend to reside somewhere in that mushy centre of, of the political spectrum. And so I think that's, it's really important and I, I guess I'm a, you know, I'm a farmer. I mean, I, I grew up in the country. My, you know, my parents were members of the country party. <laughs> so I, I am really a, I think, a pretty conservative kind of guy. Um, and I'm a, a Christian, and I, I reside <coughs> in that in that centrist thing. So I, I reject this idea of being called a leftist. I'm called a leftist by right wing media. <laughs> Chris Kenny, my favourite friend is Chris Kenny, who um, you know le he constantly calls me a leftist, and I, I reject, utterly reject that. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, a socialist in that sense. Um, but I, I believe that a, a just society works for everybody uh, across the political spectrum. Um, and we go back to the, you know, the, the young men thing. I mean, a, 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 a gender just society works for everybody. Uh, everybody needs to be able to find a, a, a space in there. Um, and so, you know, I think to, to be able to stand as a, a centrist and and not buy into the extremes at 4.30 I've got to talk about uh, 
uh, with Con Karapanagiotis from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre about um, uh, radical empathy. Um, and uh, radical it comes from a, 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 a the word comes from the root word for root. It's where we get our word radish from. Uh, and to, to be radical means to be deeply rooted uh, in, in your tradition and your place. And, and to be radicalised is the opposite to that. Because mm. uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's surface stuff. You know, those are all radicalised. So you get the radicalised on the right and you get the radicalised on the left. It has no depth. Uh, to be radical, you have to be deep in, in your place and in yourself and in who you are. And I think that's what people really respond to. Hi. Um, Hi. Hello. <laughs> um, with the, the likes of John Howard and Tony Abbott character referencing George Pell, mm -hmm. and I sit in the side that church and state have to be completely separated, how are you going to be... Are you going to be separate in Parliament? I, I guess this is a political question, isn't it? A candidate question. Um, are you going to be church and state in yeah. Parliament or are you going to be separate? Yeah, so it's important to understand what the separation of church and state essentially is. Um, and I mean, that, uh, I guess, it's, it's much more an American thing than it is an Australian thing. Uh, but we made a choice in 1901 about how we would formulate uh, the structure of our, of our federation and we decided that we, we wouldn't take on the English system. Uh, so the English system is uh, an established church. There is no separation of church and state in, in the United Kingdom. The, the head of state has to be an Anglican. There are 26 bishops that sit in the House of Lords ex officio. Uh, they're called the Lord Spiritual. Uh, and there are some law lords who bring... Uh, um, and that system actually doesn't work too bad for the UK, to be honest. But we made a choice that we would have a, a secular state, not necessarily a secular society, which is the French model uh, of uh, la cité, which is really strict in terms of... So it's, it's a bit... It's, it's a little bit hard to really draw a clear line in the Australian politics. So um, the Archbishop doesn't get a seat in the Senate. That's, that's a separation between church and state. So you've got to get elected to the Senate um, or the House of Representatives. It, and there are more Christians than, than atheists in, in, in Parliament. Um, a few more Muslims coming in now and, um, and a few atheists. The, so our system says that I will be, you know, I can be elected to the Senate uh, as a private citizen, whether I'm a, a priest or not. Um, I will not hold a bishop's licence while I'm in there, um, so I won't be able to function as a priest. And I'm very clear that I'm there to represent the people of New South Wales uh, in the Senate. Um, I will bring with me uh, my, you know, my ideological terms of reference, which... I know I have to translate into universal principles. Um, so there, there is a clear separation in that sense. Um, there have been a number of clergy who have sat in both houses. Um, most notable, uh, Deputy Prime Minister to um, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating was a man by the name of Brian Howe. Uh, he was a Uniting Church minister. 
practiced, and actually practiced as a United Church minister all the time that he was a uh, um, Deputy Prime Minister as well on a Sunday. Now, I won't do that because I think um, part of the issue for an Anglican, the United Church is a bit different, part of the issue for an Anglican is to hold the bishop's licence, you have to have an avow of obedience to the bishop. Mm. Now, I don't, I don't believe it's proper for someone to sit in Parliament that has a vow of obedience to somebody other than the Constitution. Uh, and the Bishop and I have had a long conversation about that. <laughs> <laughs> we are running out of time. In fact, we have to finish, but it is the lunch break, so I want one last question. Where is it? Gentlemen, over there. Uh, Thank you. Father Rod, Brian Brown here. Where are you, Brian? Here I am. Hello, Brian. How are you? Nice to see you. <laughs> Just a very Speaking quick of uniting church ministers. <laughs> <laughs> Just a very quick practical question. How do you deal, well, practically and emotionally with Twitter trolls? Ban and delete. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I've learnt the hard way. I mean, I... Julian Burnside... Julian, Julian's a very clever man. He was quite good at engaging with these and I... I, um, and he used to engage when he could with trolls. And I've tried, and, but uh, in my experience it just ends up in ban and delete, so you might as well do it to start with and say... <laughs> you might as well do it to start with and save yourself the grief. Um, and I've been led down some pretty dark paths a couple of times with that stuff. And so social media is not the place to have those conversations, uh, I, I would say. if. Uh, if you genuinely want to have that conversation with me, uh, make an appointment and we can sit down and have a talk about it. it, it social media is far too one-dimensional to have conversations about that kind of stuff. So you don't engage now? No. No. Thank you for engaging with us today. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Go buy the book, go get it signed. I'm about to ask you to do that for me. Aww. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful weekend. Please thank Father Rod Bauer one more time. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.